0: I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. So let's say you're at the grocery store and you're picking up salmon. Imagine there's a QR code on that salmon package that you can scan, and it shows you a map of the actual river where the salmon grew up and a picture of Kevin the fisherman who reeled in this particular salmon. Now imagine being able to scan that QR code for everything in your shopping cart. Wouldn't that be awesome to have that level of transparency and to get to know your food producers on every grocery trip? The good news is a lot of this technology we already have. And today we're talking to Aidan Dowdle, who's building a platform like this using blockchain technology. We'll get into why blockchain is useful in particular for tracing supply chain. But before that, we dive deep into the palm oil industry, which we talked about last time. Today, we'll talk more about what palm oil is used for, how it's grown, and why we're so dependent on commodities like palm. Now, the quants in the room, the math folks, the finance folks, y'all are just having a blast this month with all this talk around supply chain. Next time, we'll be back with one of our all time favorite guests, Chef Dr. Mike, on a special episode around sugar. In the meantime, if you're new to the show, welcome, welcome. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify for more interviews like this. And you can find me, Jane Z, on Instagram at farm.2.future. All right, on to the show. Aiden, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Jane. How are you doing?
0: Good, good. Uh, Before we get into the nitty gritty, I know you spent about a decade living in South Africa before you moved uh, back to stateside and now living in New York. I wonder if you could give folks a bit about your background and how you got into the food and agriculture industry.
1: Sure. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I actually grew up in Southeast Asia. So I was born in Hong Kong and my family moved to Singapore when I was three years old. My mom was an academic and my dad was like a, a scientist, but he moved kind of into the commercial side of the, you know, agricultural and fertilizer business. So like in a sense, it kind of runs in the blood, I guess, um, you know, so that was my, my initial exposure. And then, you know, when I was 13, you know, the family moved back to Chicago, where we're from. I graduated college right when like Lehman Brothers collapsed during like the financial crisis, you know, and because I had grown up abroad, I, you know, kind of like was craving that opportunity. And so I kind of like used my existing network and, um, you know, wanted to to kind of move back to Singapore. And so that's where I went to work for the company I used to work for. And then, yeah, then they transferred me to South Africa, where I lived for a decade, and then finally back to the US. So that is the roundabout story.
0: The, the gap year that turned into your whole career.
1: Yes, exactly right. Yes. I mean, I didn't know what I was shipping off for. Yeah, it turned out to be kind of like a wonderful, wonderful step in my life and, and my career, certainly.
0: So uh, speaking of shipping, you spent much of your career working as a commodity trader. Now, when I first heard this term, like I immediately thought banking, investment banking, you're doing stocks and trades. Um, but that's not what you were doing, right? Can you give us a view of like what what commodity trading is and what your day to day was like?
1: Yeah, sure, no problem. You know, I think when I tell people you know that I'm a commodity trader, I was a commodity trader you know people often think about like the movies and screens and like you know maybe trading of financial instruments and you know certainly there was a degree and an aspects of of what we were doing that very much looked like that but you know commodity trading underlying is about like bringing a product from one location to the other buying it and selling it at a margin right and that's you know that's kind of the basis of trading so you know in like the food context it would be you know let's say moving 30,000 tons of sugar from brazil to south africa you know linking the production with the customer there is that aspect to it where you know you're using financial instruments to hedge and things like that as well so there is a bit of that too but like i think the more interesting part is the the kind of like the physical movement of goods
0: So yeah, how much of of that supply chain, I guess, did you oversee? Like, were you actually negotiating like transportation pieces? Were you talking with clients about pricing? And, And also, can you share who were some of your clients that you work with?
1: Yeah, sure. So generally in this trade, there are a few large companies that own a lot of the supply chain and operate a lot of the supply chain. And so, you know, I worked for one of these large organizations and they were completely up and down the supply chain. So, you know, for example, palm oil is one of the commodities that I traded. They owned plantations. They owned the mills. They owned the refineries. They owned some port facilities. They owned the ships. And then, you know, at the destination markets, you know, they owned the processing facilities and things like that. My, My responsibility is, was for like the entire chain itself. So I had a geographic cover in the area. To kind of answer that, I was responsible for everything. And, and that goes like with every aspect of it. I mean, I spoke with the clients, you know, clients for different products, you know, would be like Unilever buys a lot of palm oil or Nestle or, or Colgate or kind of our in-house production facilities to much smaller consumers as well. So kind of like a, a complete range of clients and use cases, certainly
0: one of the things palm oil is used for is toothpaste. So would it be like, for example, Colgate comes to you and be like, okay, we're rolling out this new product line for toothpaste. We need this amount of palm oil and we have these specs for it. Is that kind of the working relationship?
1: Yeah. So, you know, Colgate, I mean, obviously they, they do a lot of internal research themselves. So, you know, I think soap is like the more kind of like appropriate example, they do a lot of in-house testing and they determine basically what needs to be put into the soap to give it the properties that they want it to, right? And so because of all their research and demand, you know, they have an idea of like the different products that can go in. And so then they would come to us and be like, this is the the specification of palm oil I need. Usually an organization like that, and many of those organizations, like they, they also have a degree of their own processing. So you know, we'll ship it to them, and you know, and they'll process it and blend it with the other products that you know that they need themselves. You know, for the bigger organizations, they also have like their big in-house research divisions where they work with clients and they work with customers and help them with their ingredients and their specifications and things like that. So yeah, it's it, it goes both ways um, for sure.
0: It sounds like you were shipping raw ingredients for a number of different use cases outside of food. What would you say was the breakdown between raw materials like as food versus as ingredients for um, like consumer packaged goods?
1: Sure. Um, You know, it's hard to say specifically because it really depends on like every market has its own unique tastes for certain things. Right. So palm oil you know, we're going to probably talk a lot about palm oil, I assume. Yep. <laughs> but palm oil in colder climates, palm oil um, tends to solidify a little bit. So generally towards the equator, palm oil um, is liquid at room temperature, right? But the second that it gets below like a certain temperature begins to solidify and consumers don't like that, even though there's really no health difference for, for the consumer, but just conceptually, they don't like that. So mm-hmm. it just really depends on the market. But, you know, I, I would say it's probably 60% for food and then kind of maybe 40% for, you know, other uses, maybe even a little bit skewed more towards food, but yeah. Hmm.
0: That's interesting. You say the oil solidifies because that reminds me of coconut oil, which is very much popular in the West right now. And when I think of where palm oil comes from, like to me, when I first heard that I thought coconuts because coconuts come from palm trees, but those are two separate types of oils, right?
1: Yes, they are two separate types of oil, but they go hand in hand because they're growing in the same regions as palm oil, you know, particularly in Southeast Asia, where from my memory, you know, 90% of the production is, is kind of in Indonesia and Malaysia. So you get a lot of coconut there and and there is like part of the palm oil, the kernel, which is separate from like, it's like within the fruit that's chemically very similar to coconut oil. And like we classify Mm. these as lauric oils. So it's the palm kernel oil and coconut oil that are very um, similar chemically.
0: Do you have any like an opinion on why coconut oil has become way more popular in the West than palm oil?
1: I think it's, it has to do a little bit with marketing, to be honest with you. You know, there are, there are some health benefits. You know, I would say for kind of like the average consumer, the difference is probably negligible, probably between all of the oils. And again, I'm not a nutritionist, so, but I think it's just a little bit of how it's positioned in, in these markets. People also have preference for taste. Some of these oils taste differently. You know, common cooking oil that we use here in the States, canola oil or sunflower oil or soybean oil these taste differently. And sometimes that kind of gets into the food that you're cooking with. And so people have preferences there as well. So I think it's kind of like a a slew of a slew of things.
0: And in terms of palm oil as a crop, uh, it's very productive and thus very cheap to produce, right?
1: Yes, that's right. And kind of like a per uh, hectare basis or per acre basis, you know, palm oil is like the most productive, you certainly crops in the same family. A lot of the other, you know, major crops, like if you think about like wheat or corn or sunflower seed, you know, or soybeans, it grows in seasons, right? And where you harvest or where you plant and then six or nine months later you harvest, right? Just depending on the crop. Palm oil is continuously producing fruit year round. So like when a palm oil, um, they call it an FFB, a fresh fruit bunch is harvested, you know, there'll be other FFBs growing that aren't mature enough yet. Um, mm. And it's just kind of like a constantly moving thing. So, yeah, it is a very productive oil. It, it goes into a lot of different use cases. Um, it's a lot more vers- versatility than some of these other vegetable oils.
0: Right. And it's used as a cooking oil in many parts of the world, right?
1: Yes, that's right. So, you know, particularly in, in poorer countries, it's used itself as a cooking oil. People, you know, people use it.
0: Mm -hmm. So I guess like when it comes to sustainability and pushing for possibly replacing some of these commodities and moving towards more organic and more diversified grains and oils, what are your thoughts after having spent all this time moving such big (laughs) shipments of these commodity crops? Like, do you see some of them fading away? Are we starting to replace them or... Yeah, what are your thoughts on kind of feeding the world?
1: Yeah, you know, so obviously it's a, a difficult conversation that people, you know, feel um, very passionate about. In a way, we're going to start to see this, like with what's happening in the Ukraine and Russia, you know, where we may not have access to, to large food producers, right? And so the consequence of that is that food price is, is going to go up significantly. And, you know, the the countries that aren't food producers, in this case, that are really relying, have traditionally really relied on that region, may run out of food, right? And people will starve to death. So we have as a world population, growing population and growing demand for food. So, you know, my my personal, and again, this is my personal belief, I'm no longer working for this organization or in any organization like it at this moment. But I think there's sustainable ways to approach this, where the interests of some of the NGOs and the people concerned with deforestation or social practices and things like that, that they can have assurance that these crops are, are produced in, in sustainable ways rather than just say, okay, can we just switch to this? Or we, you know, no one can consume that. To me, that's not like a very practical solution. Specifically with palm oil, I think you've seen a lot of, and some, sometimes very rightfully, some you know, bad press and bad practices happening.
0: Is it mainly around think, the deforestation piece?
1: Mainly around the deforestation, because what's happening is that these are particularly, you know, in, in kind of super rural parts of Indonesia, you know, like in Borneo, these are very, very poor areas, right? And these subsistence farmers, generationally, the way that they've cleared land is to, you know, slash and burn, right? Right. And so how do we approach the situation in entirety to kind of like avoid situations like that? But I mean, to kind of go back to the original question, you know, I think a lot of people have thought about, okay, well, like palm oil, you know, like, you know what else can we consume? And people think about, you know, soybeans and soybean oil. And then, you know, you have similar, you know, situations evolving and getting worse in, in places like Brazil. So it's a very, very difficult You know, subjects, and unfortunately, we're we're dependent on all the food that is being produced. I don't know what the statistics are of how many people are starving every day. It's now going to get worse. We have to think about these two kind of at times competing interests at the same time.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I saw this infographic about how Russia is one of the biggest wheat exporters in the world, and there's a lot of countries around Middle East, kind of North Africa that depend on that supply chain. So I think you're right. We're going to see ripple effects there and probably even here with food prices going up.
1: Definitely. These commodities are, there's kind of international set prices. So when you're taking supply away on the other side of the world, even though maybe your wheat is coming from Canada, ultimately the price of that good is going to go up because it, you know, mm-hmm. people are willing to pay more on the other side of the world. So you're right. Particularly if the conflict lasts, we will see significantly higher food prices.
0: When you say the, the prices are set internationally, do you just mean like by supply and demand of who's willing to pay? Or is there like an organization that sets these prices?
1: The way it kind of works is most of these crops are traded on derivative exchanges, right? And that is kind of the world producers, the world suppliers will use um, and the, you know, the buyers will use these exchanges to, you know, hedge their price and, and trade and things like that. And the biggest one is in Chicago. And so you'll have a, you know, the price of soybeans that you'll see on your screen in Chicago. And even if the, or your purchase contract is out of Brazil, There'll be a a differential between, say, the Chicago price and the Brazil price. Depending on the local supply and demand factors at play,
0: I feel like I could pick your brain all day about supply chain <laughs> stuff. <laughs> but switching gears a little bit, right now you're focused on solving some really specific problems in tracing supply chain, right? And maybe we can use palm oil as the sort of case study here. So I guess to lay down the framework, and you were kind of already mentioned some of these pieces of palm oil production and supply chain, but can you walk us through what that process looks like from the actual plant, from the tree to the end product?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, just to kind of give you a a broad, so, you know, the, the, the tree is growing and, you know, an FFB, a fresh fruit bunch, looks like a very big pineapple with like very large fruit, like large, hard grapes dotted all over the outside. Right. That's kind of like very roughly in your mind. and You can Google that and, and look that up. Those like grapes, those are the things that are being processed. So what will happen is they'll cut that down. And usually depending on the plantation or depending on the specific supply chain, it goes in a wheelbarrow and then into a truck and it gets taken to a mill. And those grapes that are on the exterior will get separated from, you know, the underlying like fruit, I guess, or pineapple thing. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then what will happen is if you think about a grape, you know, you have two things in a grape, right? You have like a seed in the middle of it. And then you have like the, f- the fleshy, like tasty part. And actually palm oil, you can do two things. So like that fleshy part of the grape is actually what's kind of like conventionally known as palm oil and that seed can go to a different process um, and is crushed and oil is extracted and it's palm kernel oil and that's very similar to the coconut oil that we we spoke about earlier ah. so once you know it goes to the mill taken apart from the pineapple fruit and then it's crushed and we get this oil that's kind of extracted right and so you have crude palm oil at that point from there depending on the facility sometimes this is another facility sometimes it's in the same facility It will get trucks for further refining. Basically what will happen is the CPO will get refined and you'll strip out products from it, you know, about 5% of product, And that product that is stripped out is actually one of the primary ingredients in soap.
0: And what is that product? Is it like solid stuff in the oil or?
1: It's, it's a fatty acid. And so then now you have this kind of like refined palm oil from here this refined palm oil can go directly into certain other productions. It can go into like margarine, things like that, or it can be further processed and split out into cooking oil. And, you know, then a separate harder substance also comes out, which also goes into the soap industry as well. You can actually continue to split it and refine it. This is why it's such a um, a useful crop for people because, you know, like other oil seed crops, it's really just mainly for cooking oil. And every, obviously everything is used for biodiesel. Palm oil is used in, in, in all these like different use cases. So you know, from there, it will either be shipped out to the consumption market, into a truck, into a port, into a tank, onto a ship, you know, off the ship, into a tank, into a truck, into um, a processing facility, and then it's turned into some kind of consumer good.
0: Wow. So this palm oil is like a international voyager <laughs> going through all the trucks and planes and ships and things.
1: Yeah. and I, I think the world ships like 50 or 60 million tons of palm oil around the world every year. So it's a lot of product.
0: And did you see any like change in that number while you were working? Like, uh, did it go up or down?
1: So yes, like generally, because actually, if you think about it, you know, palm oil is an ancestrally, it's a West African And I think the Dutch brought it to Malaysia, and they put it on all these rubber plantations. It has been growing very steadily, you know, from nothing to where we we have it today, 80 or 90 million or whatever it is, tons. And I sense that we've kind of like peaked, at least for the near term. Certainly we're not on this like crazy runaway growth, you know, that's happened over the last 30 years. Um, It depends on a lot of things, right? Fertilizer costs and things like that. But yeah, to answer your question, I believe we're close to the peak for a while.
0: Now that you mentioned fertilizer, do you know what kind of fertilizer is used for uh, growing palm oil?
1: Yeah, I, there's different blends, and you'll you'll have to excuse me for not knowing exactly, but a lot of potash, or some some you know, other blends. You know, this is another commodity in Russia and Belarus that's kind of being taken off the you know world market, which is going to also increase the cost of food. It's because the other producing countries get more expensive.
0: Yeah, and Canada is a big supplier of potash. Really that's hundred percent
1: right. Yeah. And, you know, potash is only found in mines in like very specific countries and not many. I think there's a little bit of production in Israel and Jordan, you know, Russia and Belarus. And this is not a a commodity or a product that you could find everywhere. Certainly not.
0: Uh, It's funny in my head, I have this view of like, if you see earth as this like little dollhouse view and you take like a little bit of potash here, a little bit clay from there, like make some palm trees and then ship the stuff around the world. It's, it's really incredible what we've built as humans to, to have all these supply chains running and, and feeding the world.
1: Well, that's right. And you know, it's kind of cliche to say that we're all connected, but we are. You know, whoever was depositing the potash mines around the world didn't really have a view on where borders were being drawn, certainly. So, you know, I think the pandemic and all of this stuff has turned people's attention to how connected we are and how much we rely on things that other people produce.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So going back to these supply chain uh, steps, where are the biggest pain points along this? Is it mainly in that production step of tracing like the source of where this palm oil came from?
1: Yeah. So, you know, it it kind of depends on what view you're looking on, but as we spoke about, you know, working on a startup that's kind of aiming to solve some of these problems, right? I don't find a lot of these supply chains very efficient, A lot of that has to do with, from like a data perspective, having like different people collect data, like no real ability to share certain aspects of that data across the supply chain, right? And I think that's a big problem. And, you know, that can be any kind of data. And I think there's a lot going on with provenance of like where things are, are coming from open these barriers that have like traditionally existed between these organizations and help them with like technology that will enable for more efficient processing and movement of these goods and also give people some clear visibility on where their things are actually coming from, right? And so like this technology exists and it's just about adapting to the new situation.
0: Can you share some examples of what data you're talking about?
1: Yeah, sure. So one of the, the things that, you know, we're working on specifically from like the technology perspective is, you know, distributed ledger technology or blockchains, right? These are methods in which ledgers of information can be kind of like passed to a decentralized network. So everyone will have access to that. Everyone about within it, the supply chain, you mean? Well, yes. I mean, everyone within the supply chain that has access to like, say, the network. Right. It's a complicated process and how you get to that point. But like, that's like the general idea. And so, you know, an example that I like to give to people is like fresh fish and, you know, and you're seeing the application of of blockchain and fresh fish where you can actually, in, in, in some places you can scan the QR code of a box at the fish market. And, you know, because it is documented on this network, as it moves through the supply chain, You can say, hey, like Henry, the fisherman in Vancouver, reeled the salmon in and then it went to like this facility on this day and it like Mm -hmm. flew to, you know, Boston on this day and it went to the market on this day. And so that's the kind of information that can be shared. And, you know, again, that's like talking specifically about the underlying asset and the commodity itself.
0: It's almost like the FedEx shipping notifications you get where it's like landed at this facility and then it comes to your house.
1: Well, that's exactly right. And, 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 you know, there's a whole bunch of other data that can be passed along with this that would be useful to people, right? Like, wouldn't you want to know if when you're scanning it, that it didn't go out in the desert, you know, above a certain temperature, you get access to information, you know, which helps these organizations themselves, you know, kind of payment information or, you know, data around, you know, shipping documents and things like that. And, that's, what's really kind of interesting to me about this technology. And again, you know, kind of traditionally the market was very segregated and people don't have much visibility about their supplier supplier. So there was a way, you know, with the physical products, certainly to be able to have a view of that, that, you know, I think would, would, would go a long way.
0: So I am very beginner when it comes to blockchain, but my understanding with what you're describing is that the benefit of, of using blockchain is that it's distributed and permanent anytime you make a change, right? That's right. Um, so are, are those the two benefits that make more sense to use blockchain versus just like a regular old database
1: Right. So, you know, first people need to draw the distinction, I think, with cryptocurrencies and and blockchain. But when I talk to people about blockchain, blockchain is like not the silver bullet that is going to like solve world network things. You know, It, it has its use cases where it's like a very valuable tool, but it's just like one tool in the tool belt. I think some of like the issues that we're seeing could be helped by blockchain, but you know, you, you need certain characteristics that you need out of the database, right? And, and one of those is being immutable, um, that you can't change it. And so if you have maybe a network where you don't care that it's immutable, then you don't really need blockchain in that case. So the, the blockchain is great because it's immutable, it brings this degree of trust, right? And so all the participants in the chain, know that no one is cheating the block. Like it's not biased, yeah. right? And that's what allows like a degree of trust for you know six people up the chain that that information is true, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so that's like a bit of like a new tool, like certainly in, in supply
0: chain. Trust is definitely the word that came to mind for me, too, because if you know Henry the fisherman is getting your salmon and you know him personally, you don't need a QR code. But if you're shipping product from that's going through five different countries and 20 different facilities, you don't know who's touching this thing. So having that record of every step sounds like it can solve some of these problems.
1: Right. And, you know, I think there's a lot of things that you can then do with this. I mean, you can look at food safety and, for example, and you, you have a food recall issue. You're really able to tell very specifically within a band, like, okay, where are the products in this big food supply chain, you know, that are potentially dangerous? And how do we extract only those products and nothing else, right? And so there's a mm-hmm. lot that, like, then can be done with this once the system is set up.
0: Yeah. Amazing. This has been very enlightening for me. And I hope for <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yeah. if folks want to learn more about what you're working on, where can they find you?
1: Yeah, that's great. Thanks. You know, we have a, a website, our company is called Verdethos, dot i o. And yeah, just pop on by and um, find me on LinkedIn. I'm always really like talking about this with people, something I'm very passionate about. So jane i really appreciate your time and and inviting me on and i I hope i can come back again
0: (laughs) yes we'll do a part two once you guys have launched
1: yes that would be that would be really great
0: and that's a wrap thank you so much for tuning in remember to nourish your body and i'll talk to you next time